Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for a biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with a biographer about his or her work. This time, history professor Dinyar Patel, author of Nauroji, Pioneer of Indian Nationalism, published by Harvard University Press in May 2020. From Patel's home base in Mumbai, India, we spoke via Zoom about his book, his first biography. It's a biography of, of a figure who I've written about as being the first Indian nationalist leader. So someone who inspired Gandhi, uh, but also someone who was much more than just a you know, political figure in India. He was also someone who was really the first Indian to be elected to the British House of Commons, uh, to Parliament, and also a, a, an anti-colonial leader of international repute. You know, his writing and his ideas circulated really all around the globe. Right. And so he was called the Grand Old Man of India. What was his full name? So his full name was Dadabai Nauroji. Um, he is a member of a community in India called the Parsis. Um, I'm a Parsi myself, and and we have very distinct names. So uh, at least you see the the, the syllable G, uh, which is kind of like a you know a term of respect, uh, frequently coming up in in Parsi surnames. When he came to England, no one could really pronounce his name, <laughs> so he just he just went by D Nauroji. Okay, one of the things that you say, and you start the book in your introduction, just saying that any scholar, any writer who wants to write a biography of an Indian leader has a lot of work to do. It's a difficult task. Why? It's very difficult to write an Indian biography for a few reasons. I mean, first of all, just the diversity and complexity of India makes it difficult because, you know, there's so many different languages. So if you're working in an archive, you'll encounter material that's in different languages. So, you know, in Naroji's papers, um, I encountered stuff that was in Urdu, Persian, French, I think there were there might have been one item in Chinese. So it's not a large portion of the papers, but still, you know, a significant amount of material is in, a, in is in another language and and Gujarati, which was the the, the language which Naroji grew up uh, speaking. So that's one uh, difficulty. But you know, really, I think the biggest difficulty is just the fact that India has just not done a very good job of of preserving its history. You know, history is is so political over here in India, but. Ironically, that has not translated into good preservation. So, you know, apart from a few figures like, say, a Mahatma Gandhi or a Jawaharlal Nehru, it's very difficult to find comprehensive collections of important people. Naroji luckily had a large surviving body of papers, but that body of papers has probably reduced in size by 30 to 50 percent over the course of the decades uh, due to damage uh, and bad preservation. We have a hot, humid climate over here, and because there's no proper temperature control, there's fungus, uh, there's insect damage, rodent damage. Uh, So, you know, the same problems that would bedevil archival collections in part of the U.S. prior to modern preservation methods and air conditioning continue to bedevil archival collections here in India. And in uh, the case of Nauroji's papers, they were preserved, which is good. You know, I mean, so automa- yeah, automatically Nauroji is in, is in a tiny minority of Indian historical figures who have a repository of historical material. But uh, because of bad preservation, a large chunk of the material is unreadable. I mean, it, it is literally holes in paper or splotches of ink. 
And so, you know, I probably damaged my eyesight <laughs> to a great degree trying to understand this stuff. And sometimes it literally is like putting together pieces in a jigsaw puzzle. I've had the experience of, you know, once I encountered an arrest warrant for Gandhi from 1921. It was probably, you know, the first time he was arrested in India and it just fell apart in my hands. Mm. Um, that's how neglectful the government has been of uh, historical collections here. It's, it's, it's a scandal. But of course, there are infinite numbers of priorities here in India that are much more important. And uh, the government has just never prioritized this. Are Naroji's uh, papers in one place or are they scattered uh, throughout the country? They're scattered, yeah. I mean, the vast majority are in a facility called the National Archives of India, which, you know, to, to show you once more how difficult it is to do archival work in here in India, the government is currently planning to demolish. Imagine the National Archives of America going offline for three, four, five years without any transparency by the government about where the, the material will be kept, what facilities will be available. That's the situation we face. Uh, so, you know, the National Archives of India has a great collection of material, but a lot of it is in very bad condition. Now that the plans to demolish the facility, we're, we're all very worried that a lot of stuff will be destroyed or stolen or whatnot in uh, the process also. Uh, there's some letters in the British Library in, in London, uh, and also an archival facility in, in Delhi called the, um, the Nehru Memorial Museum and Library, which is much better run. So it is a bit of a wild goose chase. I mean, I went to Ireland also to track down material. Mm. Um, you know, it's it's really global in many ways. And, and how many years did you work on this biography? <laughs> Too many. You know, I started ar archival research in 2011, and I took basically three years to do archival research. You know, I kind of took my time, which, you know, was good and bad. But from 2011 until publishing in 2020, I was always working on this. So it, it took about nine or 10 years. Okay. And you were teaching at the same time, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it wasn't 100% of my time spent on it, but but I spent three years pretty much just doing archival research in, in India, Great Britain, and, you know, the U.S. and Ireland as well. So you have this vast amount of material from several continents <laughs> and India itself. How do yeah. you organize all that material? You know, there's no one way of, of really doing it. I think you really just have to go into an archive and just start digging. Uh, and you spin your wheels for some weeks. But once you get a familiarity with the collection that you're looking at, you get a better idea of how things are organized. So Naroji was, he was basically a pack rat. I mean, he kept everything, which is real fun because, you know, he kept receipts and all sorts of things, which, you know, you and I would probably throw out in the course of the day, junk mm -hmm. mail, uh, you know, flyers, advertisements. Uh, so, you know, once I knew that, I knew I had to be quite selective. Um, I got an idea of how the papers were organized. They were, they were organized alphabetically by correspondent, uh, mm -hmm. but they were organized imperfectly. So I knew I also had to kind of keep alert to, to any changes. Um, and there were 30,000 documents in the collection I was looking at. So I knew I, I, I couldn't get through everything. Uh, so I just basically tried to go as far as I could uh, in the course of two years at the National Archives. And, you know, maybe I covered about 50% of the collection, but I think... Once you get to that threshold of 40, 50%, you have a general idea of what's going on and you can identify what is important and what's not. Uh, so there's really no way really to learn uh, how to work in an archive, at least I think. You just have to go in there, kind of put in your time, show the archivist that you know, you're there for the long haul and they'll eventually help you and uh, you'll get your work done. But you know that's the archival process. What about once you have the material yeah. and then you come back and you sit in your, your home or your office and say, oh my God, now what? Yeah. <laughs> How yeah. do you move from the research phase to now organizing so that you can write? 
Yeah, I had to use software. I mean, I used uh, Scrivener, which has a tagging feature. So I could tag things as being of a particular topic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that made things easier. Uh, but it was still difficult. You know, I mean, occasionally I'd make notes to myself. Those notes kind of germinated into chapters and it sort of fell together. Now, of course, there'd always be an instance where, you know, I tried to track something which I knew I had, I had written down and I could never find it, you know, but that's kind of inevitable when you're working yes, in any project. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I just, you know, used a lot of the, the track features. Now I have uh, another software program called DevonThink, which I found useful for at least writing a lot of my, uh, you know, academic papers. And the nice thing about the software is that you can kind of match correspondence by person, you know, by, by the correspondent and, you know, the individual you, he or she was writing to. Uh, so it's kind of cool. You, you, you get a database of, you know, who Naroji was more in touch with. There might be 300 letters with, say, uh, you know, a figure uh, in India, but only five letters would say the prime minister to Great Britain. So you get a, a sense of where things are thick and thin. All right. Now, in the book, you break his life into three phases. And can you talk about how you arrived at those phases and what they were? Yeah. Uh, So that kind of came to me in a flash. I mean, it, it just shows you how a lot of times when you're working on research projects, it can never be planned, right? I mean, things just happen when they happen. So I remember I was preparing for a conference a presentation and I was supposed to talk about my my project and it just I didn't know what I was really going to use as a structure and it kind of just hit me like oh yeah that's right you know his life kind of fell into three different phases and these are the phases that uh, I outlined so you know Naroji grew up in Bombay uh, he grew up as a relatively poor individual uh, but he had access to probably the best education that was possible for an Indian in the mid 19th century so that was kind of a prequel to his life when was he born He was born in 1825. Uh, So, you know, that's an era when not all of India is under the control of the British. You know, the British are still consolidating their their control of of the country. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, you know, anyway, he had this this childhood in Bombay that was both poor and privileged in some ways, uh, but he had access to the best educational opportunities in Bombay. Uh, He learned English fluently. Uh, He got to know some of the, you know, most prominent people in Bombay at the time, both Indians and Britons. Um, And this strong academic background prepared him for the first phase of his career. And that was uh, a moment when he basically took on the role of a scholar. And, uh, you know, he was primarily investigated in why India was so poor. Uh, you know, in 1855, he relocated to London. And we don't have archival documents from his trip, but I, I think it's pretty obvious that when he arrived in London, he was quite dumbstruck by how rich the city and country was in comparison to India. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, India was still a country where millions of people died from famines uh, every few years. And here you have a country with advanced industry, railways, famine is, has long been banished uh, in, in the historical memory. Um, you know, he traveled through other parts of Europe. Uh, he went to Paris during uh, the Exposition Universelle in 1855, which again, you know, kind of showed the foremost um, advances of, of industry and, and technology in Europe were capable of. Uh, so that convinced him that there was a huge dichotomy between what India was like and what Europe was like. And so in the first phase, he dedicated a good 20 years to studying why India was so poor. And he, he came up with this argument uh, called the drain of wealth. And this was the idea that uh, a British rule 
rather than actually helping Indians, uh, as the British claimed it was, was actually draining it of its financial and material resources. It was making the country poorer. It was taking capital out of the country. Uh, and consequently, uh, you know, he went into quite a bit of sophisticated economic detail for that era. Uh, he showed that, you know, every year Indians was subject to this kind of never-ending cycle of worsening impoverishment. And so that powered the first phase of his life. And, and towards the end of that phase, uh, you know, he realized that the only way to break the cycle of worsening poverty was to achieve some form of self-government. And, you know, he came up with this idea as early as the 1880s, which is remarkably early in Indian history or even colonial history in general. You know, in empires around the world, I mean, people were probably thinking of self-government in private, but rarely do you have a person who's announcing this in public. Uh, so he was quite unpopular with a lot of uh, British colonial figures, consequently. Um, the second phase is a phase where he actually engages in politics. So in India, he helps establish uh, something called the Indian National Congress, uh, which was the party that powered Indian politics through independence. It's still around. It's in a uh, far worse shape today than, unfortunately, it's been in the past. But uh, he also engaged with British politics. Uh, he traveled to Great Britain in 1886 with the explicit purpose of standing for election to the British Parliament. And at first, this might strike an outside observer as being quite ludicrous. How can an Indian expect to be elected to the British Parliament? Why would he want to do that in, in, right. in, this, in, in the second sense? And the reason why he wanted to do this was uh, because he realized that nothing would change in India unless things changed uh, through parliament. Parliament was ultimately in control of the affairs of the Indian government. So the way to change the government of India, which was you know, the colonial government, was to go in a top-down measure, to go right to the, the fount of power, which was parliament, push for change, and hopefully that would take place. So you know, he stood for parliament once, he failed, he tried it again, he won by a whisker, and he was in parliament for a few years. And literally uh, and then... it was a whisker, because it was what, five votes? Yeah, yeah. I mean, right. he won by five votes. So it was, you know, uh, a nail biter. Uh, but he lost uh, in his in his reelection attempt and he grew increasingly disillusioned. Now, one thing before you go into the last phase, he was a proponent not only of this whole idea of the wealth drain, but also of um, national education, um, because he was also talking about the education of girls and women. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think for him, it was an intensely personal issue. Uh, he had access to some of the very first experiments in India of public education that was free. Most of the people who had access to this education were upper caste or members of elite communities like the Parsis, of which Naroji was a member. So it, it was not popular in, in, in our sense of the term, but it was quite groundbreaking. And again, this is in an era when popular education in the United States and Great Britain is really kind of getting off the ground. So, you know, public education is is, is a new thing all, all around. Uh, and he realized that if he had not received the support, none of what he accomplished later in life could have been done. Uh, so, you know, he said later in life, you know, I realized that I wasn't born with a silver spoon in my mouth. Neither is 99% of, uh, of people in India. Uh, so, you know, why should I just have, you know, people like me just have a monopoly on free education that should be available for everyone, including women which was relatively controversial because up until the 1850s, even a community like the Parsis, which nowadays we Parsis like to think that we are very progressive, uh, but up until the 1850s or so, Parsis were as orthodox as any other group in India. Uh, so, you know, he received threats from very orthodox Indian men, but he persisted. And it, it really, in many ways, uh, helped foment a wider growth of, of female education across uh, India. 
That's interesting. And, and it's also fascinating that uh, during his time in England and working in the British Parliament, he was also a firm advocate for one man, one vote, an eight-hour workday, and even home rule for places like Ireland and additional reforms in India. I mean, he was absolutely progressive. <laughs> Yeah. I, I mean, you know, a lot of Indians, including Gandhi, try to argue that they were more fit for self-government because they won't say um, Hottentots in Africa. Now, that was a reference to, you know, uh, indigenous people in South Africa. Uh, by our standards, of course, you know, we can judge that as being racist. Uh, and Naruji subscribed to this view that, you know, Indians were more advanced and therefore should have access to rights. But like Gandhi, he tended to discard a lot of these ideas as he went along. So actually, by the end of his career, uh, he was very interested in, um, you know, the political affairs of African-Americans, Africans in Britain as well. Uh, so if we judge people like him by our standards, we can find a few discrepancies. But for that era, he was he was very he was you know, extremely progressive. And I think as importantly, he became more progressive as he matured in age. So his second phase of life was his political life. What about his third phase? So, you know, Narochi was in parliament from 1892 until 1895. And when he was in parliament, uh, he tried to um, jumpstart reform. And every time he tried to do this, he was stopped. Uh, he was even stopped by members of his own government in the Liberal, Liberal Party. Uh, so he increasingly found himself kind of talking to, to empty benches. And people kind of ridiculed him for supporting proposals that people in Britain didn't really care about. Uh, so the third phase was reconciling these defeats with a willingness to still kind of engage in reform. And, you know, Naroji could have had a few options. He could have quit and retired. He was in his 70s. Uh, he could have become extremely radical and, you know, just denounce the British Empire forthwith and engage in revolutionary politics. Uh, he chose kind of a, you know, a, a different path. I mean, he continued to engage with politics in India uh, and uh, Great Britain, but he developed a very radical demeanor. Uh, he increasingly associated with socialists and some of the most firebrand socialists of that era in Europe and uh, especially in the United Kingdom. Uh, people like Henry Hinman, who was the leader of the first socialist party in Great Britain, the Social Democratic Federation. Uh, and people like Hinman actually called for the violent overthrow of British rule in India. Uh, mm. So he was he was associating with these people. He, he didn't advocate that, but you know he was in touch with them, uh, and he allied with people around the world who were at the vanguard of progressive causes. Uh, so he reached out to progressives in the United States, people who were anti-imperialists or involved with William Jennings Bryan's campaign for the presidency. He uh, reached out to uh, Irish nationalists uh, just across the Irish Sea and in Dublin. And, you know, he voted in favor of, of Irish, uh, you know, home rule. So, you know, I mean, that shows you how these kind of inter-empire links are developing in, in this era. And, you know, he, he solidifies his ties with nationalists in, in India who are both considered moderate and those who are considered a bit more radical as well. Uh, so, you know, by the early 20th century in India, uh, you start to see a split between this moderate and radical group. And Nauruji was unique in the sense that he kind of fell in between. Uh, both radicals and, and moderates saw the Naroji as being a part of their camp, uh, mm -hmm. but they also criticized him. I mean, he mm -hmm. was criticized as being too moderate by the radicals and too radical by the moderates. Uh, <laughs> so his, his, his life ends on a very transitory note in terms of the broader arc of, of, of Indian nationalism. And uh, that third phase of his career and, and life really ends with him giving a speech to the Indian uh, National Congress uh, in Calcutta in 1906, where he calls for something called Swaraj. Uh, and Swaraj was basically Indian self-government. Uh, and up into this era, he called for Swaraj 
with some sort of calibration. Uh, Swaraj under the aegis of, of British control, under British hegemony, uh, which suggested that, you know, India would, would remain within the British imperial world, but would exercise more power, something like, say, Canada or Australia. Uh, and in this last speech, he left it very open-ended. He said, you know, we could have Swaraj like other colonies, like Australia or Canada, or like Great Britain itself, which I interpret at least to mean full independence. Mm. Uh, so, you know, his last speech, and he, and he gave the speech when he was 82, he was too old to actually deliver the speech. I mean, he had to give it to a younger member of the Congress to, to read. Uh, you know, he really kind of puts the ball into the court of, of the radicals, uh, so to speak. And that transforms Indian nationalism thereafter. Where was um, Gandhi in terms of listening to this grand old man of India and his philosophies? So, you know, we talked about archival decay. And unfortunately, correspondence between Gandhi and Naroji is to a large degree, uh, you know, not there anymore. So, you know, I unfortunately could only answer this question uh, in the book uh, partially, but Gandhi was in South Africa uh, in the 1890s. He had moved to South Africa as a lawyer and he, he'd taken up issues of the rights of Indians in South Africa. And so very early in his career, he wrote to Naroji, who was in, in parliament there. And, and, and he said, could you please act as a, a father acts to his son and guide me in my political work? Uh, mm -hmm. And Naroji writes back and, and thus begins about 10 or 15 years of, of pretty regular correspondence where Gandhi basically uses Naroji as a, a loudspeaker in London uh, to broadcast his, uh, you know, reports of what was happening to the Indian community and various new racist laws. So, you know, if you look in the archival records in London, you'll see that Gandhi will send a letter to Naroji talking about all the terrible things that are happening in, in Natal or, or Durban or, uh, you know, eventually in, in places like Johannesburg. And Naroji will in turn take that material and send it to, say, the colonial officials or members of parliament and say, you know, this is ridiculous. What are you guys doing? You need to do something to alleviate the conditions of, of Indians. So, you know, mm -hmm. he really kind of amplified Gandhi's political demands. And he also served as, I think, you know, a pretty strong inspiration in Gandhi's early career. You know, if you read what Gandhi wrote about uh, Naroji, it's, you know, it's, it's written in kind of the terms of greatest respect. He regarded him as kind of a mentor figure, someone who kind of began the process of Indian nationalism. And, you know, people like Gandhi thereafter could develop it in new directions uh, based on the, in the foundation that uh, Naroji, you know, kind of laid. Well, what about his personal life? Because he was married as early as, what, 11 and his wife was seven? <laughs> Investigating Naroji's personal life was really the hardest part of this project because the material is just not there. Uh, so, you know, as you mentioned, he had a, a, a child marriage, if you will. I mean, he was married when he was about 11. And as you mentioned, his wife was about seven, uh, which was common uh, across the board in India up until quite frankly, relatively recently. Mm. Uh, and it was common in the Parsi community as well. Now, apparently this match was not terribly happy. A previous biographer of Dadabai Naroji, who wrote a book in the 1930s, who had access to more papers and also people who knew Naroji, you know, people who, who had living memory, uh, said that they were not very well matched. His wife was not uh, very keen to learn to read and write. He was not very interested in intellectual subjects. And, you know, I mean, it's impossible for me to really verify this or, or you know, determine whether this is just a product of those biases of that era as well. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's basically hardly any mention of her in the archival collections, mm -hmm. which kind of adds a nuance to Naroji's reformist stance. I mean, he was very much in favor of, of female education and the advancement of women. But for his own wife, that relationship was not very good. And it it's very difficult for me to understand whether he imbued the same progressive ideas in his own 
marital relationship that he imbued throughout uh, his writings and speeches and such. Um, Certainly with his children, he was very progressive. You know, he allowed uh, you know his two daughters to. I mean, he encouraged his two daughters to get educated uh, and even educated abroad. But with his wife, we know next to nothing. Next um, mm, yeah. to yeah. Speaking of which, uh, what about his descendants? Are any of his descendants, either from his son or from his daughters, still alive? Unfortunately not. Uh, so, you know, the Parsi community today is rapidly dwindling, uh, to a large degree because. People just don't have kids anymore. So, and, you know, he had three children. One of his children had eight children. Mm. And of those eight children, none of them had any children. So none? The li- not none. one? None. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's, it's, it's incredible. Yeah. Uh, and I've, I've actually written, you know, I've written a paper recently on one of his grandchildren. I mean, all of those eight grandchildren were incredible. I mean, they included amongst them, you know, like the first woman doctor to receive a, you know, a medical degree in Edinburgh University, people who worked with the, the Tata Corporation here in India, people who are nationalist leaders, pioneering feminists, but none of them had any children, so the family line ended with them, which means also that any material in his family, uh, you know, which was kept in his family, was, was lost, which makes it even more difficult to, to flesh out his life story or the life stories of his descendants. Okay. And then any suggestions that you would have after your journey um, for writers who are interested in taking on major national and international figures like Naroji? Go for it. I mean, it's, you know, it's a lot of work. Uh, It requires a lot of patience, but I really enjoyed almost every moment of it. Um, And there is a certain joy about working with figures who are less known in parts of the world where archival research is much more difficult. Working at, say, a place like the National Archives had its grave difficulties. I mean, I got nearly stung by hornets. Uh, you had to work, wow. you know, you, you, got, you have to work in, in facilities where electricity goes out or the AC is not working and you get all sorts of weird gunk on your hands from fungus and what have you. But at the same time, you are the first person looking at this material. Uh, and since I put in my face there for so long, uh, I could actually work with the archivists to, to help preserve the material or reorganize the material. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I you know, was able to kind of restructure the archive to a certain degree. And consequently, when I got to the British Library, it was great. You know, it, it was air conditioned. It was, you know, the Internet worked. But it was also a little boring <laughs> because, you know, <laughs> you know, people had already worked, looked at this facilities and there, there was no challenge there. Uh, you know, people had already looked at this material like twice or thrice. So, so I, I think there is some, you know, benefit of, of hardship. And maybe it's just dependent on the individual research. I, I particularly enjoy that uh, that aspect, kind of being the first one to discover the stuff. So, so I really encourage others, you know, in India or, or, or abroad, to to really go out and uh, dive into these archival collections and see what's there. And Robert Caro's philosophy of reading every page slows you down, but you know, it's the best method we have to really paint a multi-dimensional portrait of a figure. That was Dinyar Patel assistant professor of history at the S.B. Jane Institute of Management and Research in Mumbai, India. Patel's biography, Naroji, Pioneer of Indian Nationalism, was published by Harvard University Press in May 2020. This interview was recorded via Zoom on July 15th of this year. To learn more about bio or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org.
I'm bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Enzo De Palma created our theme music. And until next time, have a wonderful day. <laughs>